0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels number 16. In the previous episode, we started our journey through the first of many uh, of Jesus' miracles. This was when he was at a wedding at Cana and how he turned the water to wine, and looking at the kingdom implications and the kingdom pictures of why he did that, and how uh, his mother, people at the wedding, his disciples would have been thinking about the kingdom uh, pictures upon seeing that miracle. And then we left off with him going to the temple and seeing uh, it being turned into a marketplace and him being very upset about that and <laughs> making a whip of cords and driving everybody out because it was not a house of prayer.
0: Yeah, the Son of God causing a ruckus. <laughs> it's just not what you normally think about, but no. that's that's what we got. No. Yeah, and, that's, and I remember we also... Uh, We've got one more little sentence here that's going to bring us sort of back into where we left off, right? Uh, we, we had talked about that idea that the fact that there were animals for sale, etc., had some, some history behind it, but that it'd still gotten somehow out of whack, twisted, whatever. So we get this whole story, and so now we're going to continue in John chapter 2 and verse 17. Were you ready?
1: Yeah, and don't forget that we have a uh, PDF with our notes for you to use for your own reference, so just know that it's in the show notes. That's right. Yeah, I forgot
0: we did that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the one that puts them up there, (laughs) but whatever. All right, here we go. uh, Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, what they're referring to here is actually in Psalm 69, verse 9. And so uh, that's, I think, uh, another one of those in sort of the Jewish history or tradition. At this time, there was an understanding that this, this was relating to Messiah. And so John here is connecting Jesus to the suffering servant that is being humiliated for being righteous, which is a crazy picture, right? And this, uh, I guess, in a sense, this is also inferring that whatever Jesus is doing here at the temple, the idea that he's driving out the animals and all that, there, there's, I, I think we could say that John is trying to say that what Jesus was doing was a righteous act. And then, of course, the obvious, uh, it does appear that Jesus is in fact zealous about the temple.
1: So could you read that two different ways with it being about Messiah being zealous for the temple as well as um, the, the writer of this psalm saying that the people being so zealous for their house is going to consume the person speaking and like implicating about his future suffering and death?
0: Huh. Now that's an interesting take. Um, you know, I wouldn't have thought of it that way, but I'm certainly not going to go. No, it couldn't have been that. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I, I have sort of been living with the, I don't know, call it the the expectation or the interpretation that no, no, this is this is talking about Jesus. He's the one that is consumed with zeal for the temple. But I don't discount your theory. It's kind of good. Anything that makes us think. I like that. I just can't answer your question. I'm not sure. Okay. Samuel. Yeah. Something to wrestle with. It is. It is. Yeah. And if I could say this idea of Jesus being zealous for the temple, I have to think that there are some people... That maybe they don't really like the sound of that because they live in this idea, in this thinking that, oh, the temple, you know, the, the law, the Old Testament, the Jews, that's all been done away with. That's not really the story that we're going to be telling. And so it's good for us to at least highlight, look, Jesus was zealous for the temple. It's God's house. So interesting thing to note. Now, their response, though, this is also kind of interesting. Check this out. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Well, since when does chasing a bunch of animals out of an area need a sign? What are they even talking about? Why Why did they say that that way? Well, number one, we might want to wrestle with, gee, what does John mean this time when he says the Jews? Good question. Yeah, he could mean, you know, the people that were standing around watching him do it. He could mean, well, they were in the temple, so there were probably some of the religious leaders around. Maybe they heard what was going on, got some word of the commotion, and they came out to, you know, see what this guy's doing. Could have been something like that. Um, we, we don't really know. But contextually, I would lean toward, well, you know, probably some of the religious leaders who happen to be around and available, they would take it upon themselves to come out and, and question, what, what are you doing? And in a way, you, you kind of just think back to chapter one, uh, I think we were, it's like verses 19, 19 through 28, they're bugging John the Baptist, and what was their question to him? Why? Are you baptizing? As if, you know, he needed some some permission or authority or something like that. The thing is, when when we're talking about this phrase, the Jews, if I could just add this one little bit in, it's really common for people to read the book of John, see all of the times that he says something about the Jews. And they very quickly and easily fall into this idea of well see, the book of John, it endorses our anti Semitism. This I think is very destructive, it's very wrong headed, and I, I really honest, honestly believe you're missing the point of whatever it is John may be saying in his gospel. I'm just going to say it. John was a Jew, and he didn't stop being a Jew. John was a Jew from the day he was born until the day he died. And so he he's not speaking against Jews in the general sense. He's not speaking against Judaism in the general sense. His problem is with those who don't understand what Judaism is really supposed to be about. His his problem is with those. Who do not accept this Messiah, his problem is with those leaders who've taken Israel down this bad path, but it 's got to stop somewhere in there and john isn't he's not himself an anti-Semite right uh, not separating himself from Judaism it's just mm-hmm. a it's, it's a grave error
1: yeah well I think it lends itself to the beauty of the biblical text and the, like the kind of the the timelessness of it as it is soon is it's about to go out from the land of Israel to the nations. Um I mean I don't know whether John was inspired to write it in that way or that it was just part of the yeah. divine plan, but being able to see the text, adding those contextual details so that later people groups who are not accustomed to Jewish life and right. Jewish culture, they'll be able to read these accounts and say, oh, right now, the writer of this, you know, telling of the Messiah is referencing the Jewish people in this story. So, I don't know, that's yeah. something that you can keep in mind, too, that, like, it's it's a part of the plan to <laughs> send it out, too.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, and and, and your point is great. It's, uh, you know, if in some sense, he's providing clarity. Now, you know, ultimately, it ends up two thousand years later, and it seems to have caused confusion. But yeah, that's the irony. You know, well, yeah, that the, the entire Judeo Christian world is filled with such irony. It's it's very difficult. But you know what I've <laughs> what I'm realizing here is that I kind of lost my point. <laughs> I, I started down the path of you know they were saying what sign do you show us? Like that was a really important thing and and then i started talking about you know how oh this was like john the baptist whatever so let's get back to that what 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 do you mean why are you asking for a sign now in some sense if if we take the gospels as a whole this is going to come across as a fairly common expectation now that may seem surprising to me or to you or to others because you know when we hear someone preach or 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 uh, try to explain something from the Word, or maybe you hear somebody who's doing evangelism or whatever, our first thought isn't, hey, show me a sign. But for them, this was a, a common thing. And, it, okay, so in, in a sense, it's recurring throughout the Gospels, but, but what are they actually saying? It's more like, hey, who gives you the right to do these things? or, you know, here's real common lingo. Who made you the boss? Or <laughs> the classic, you're not the boss of me, oh, yeah. right? Um, but if we relate it especially back to what I mentioned about John when they were saying, "Hey, why are you baptizing whatever?" What they're really getting at is look, the fact that you're doing this thing would suggest that you have some sort of authority to do this thing. So what we want to know is, where exactly does your authority come from? And therefore, they would expect the sign to be some sort of proof or demonstration or or validation of his authority. So, given all of that, at least we can kind of see why they asked. But then, (laughs) in Jesus' perfect way, let's see what he does with it. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Oh, oh, there's some good stuff in here, Samuel. Yeah. All right. So, let's say, uh, okay, how about this part? So when he says, hey, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. Now, this should be an easy one. What does that make us think of? His resurrection? Yeah. Yeah, his death and resurrection, right? And that's what we all do. We read this and we go, destroy this temple, in three days I'll raise it up. We go, boom, cross and resurrection. Yeah, baby. I
1: I wonder if this is going to be one of those... John one things with the word and we go instantly
0: to Jesus and there's more to it than that though. (laughs) Well, I've not prepared that, but if you can find that in this, I am all for it. Okay. (laughs) I'll be on the sidelines cheering you on, but it, yeah, it very commonly, it's an allusion to his death and resurrection. So the question is, and, and, and I know we've talked about this a little bit and we're going to talk about it more how much does Jesus actually know, right? I mean, we're given the story that, hey, he's he's trying to live as a human. He's, he's uh, somehow limiting, you know, the God side of himself. Not that it isn't there, not that it's not real, but, you know, he's trying to live as a human. But then you have that question, how much does he know at any point in time? Well, right here, this is very early in the story, and it comes across as if, Jesus, you know, he knows the end, and not just a little bit. He knows he's going to die and that he's going to be raised, right? Well, this is a pretty amazing proof text for that, but it's not without its difficulties simply because of other parts of Scripture, but we'll get to those when we get there. I just want to point it out that, huh, you may look at this, you may see one thing, but don't end your story there because there's other stuff, and we'll get to it in time. Now. So you take all the Gospels together, it's not so clear. And again, the part that's so hard about this is that it's appearing so early in the story. But we've already seen John putting stories very early that the other Gospels put very late. And so we don't know if he has any concern about chronology at all. So I don't know. It's it's just hard. It's hard. Uh, Now, here's another one. Um, Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people that ask him the question. And remember, it's the Jews then said, okay, so the Jews, uh, we're going to address it again. Uh, Number one, they answer as if they really do not understand what he has just said. Which, can we be honest? That's understandable. Yeah. How How are they supposed to know what that means? How is anybody standing there listening to him at that time supposed to understand what he's talking about? It's completely out of, out of context, out of time. Mm-hmm. So when they don't understand, what do they do? They take him literally. And so they respond, you know, with some sort of details about the actual temple. Here's the thing. We've already witnessed it and, and, remember, uh, and we're going to witness it some more. But we need to notice something, another something about John as a storyteller. Throughout his gospel, he's using people's misunderstanding as a literary technique. Okay, it works really well here because we can understand how they wouldn't know what he was talking about. But what it does by by telling the story in a way that starts with, hey, something happens, some people don't quite get what's going on, well then what can John do? Then he can explain it, right? That's the technique he's using. And as we go through, you'll see it happens a lot. Now, if we don't really notice this, if we don't pay attention to this, people could come across as far, you know, dumber than they really are. And we're going to see that, especially when we get to the Nicodemus story. It's coming up soon. You don't see it as much here, but it's important to know that John is using this as a storytelling telling technique. I'm going to talk about a thing, some people are going to seem to not really know what's going on, and then that's going to allow me to finish explaining the thing. That's how I tell the story. That should be a huge literary revelation for a lot of
1: people, because I would say that tons of readers of the biblical story treat the Jewish people who heard all of, you know, whether it's John the Baptist's or in this case Jesus's ministry as they were complete idiots. And you yeah. know, they, you know, if I was in that boat, I wouldn't have <laughs> been so thick like they were. It's, I don't know. It's should be humbling to hear that eh, maybe this was intentional to give us understanding of things that the writers are trying to explain to us and we should give the the local people a break.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, the very thing you're talking about, I've been guilty of so many times in my life. same, same. Looking at it now, I recognize the arrogance in it, but I needed people to help me get there. And so hopefully we're helping some other people get there with with little things like this, just the little literary things, right? Mm -hmm. So it's good. Uh, So they mentioned it takes 46 years to build, um, Funny thing, I guess in the Greek, it it could be taken as 46 years to build, but it could also be that it was built 46 years ago. And, you know, I don't deny the smart people. I'm sure they have reasons for, you know, all of their whatever. But I I mean, in the context, that's one I don't really get very much because, you know, the Jews said 46 years ago, we built this temple. Well, that's not a good comeback. You know, that's a great comeback, Potts. Um, So I don't know. I think in context, it it makes the most sense that it took 46 years to build. And of course, we know some of the history and they had, you know, been making modifications to the temple for a long time. So anyway, just want to get that out there. And then this idea of the temple being his body. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So John... Now, remember, John's writing this story much later, and he's writing a story about things that happened much earlier. So you can see John sort of adding the little bit of commentary, if you will. John is making the connection to his death and the resurrection. He's making this explicit for us, reading after the fact, but that isn't really known right there inside the story as it was happening live. But then, ah, I love this part. Now John sort of looks forward a little bit. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and he says this, they believed the scripture. And then, I mean, okay, which one? Or was it even one? Was it just all of it? Or you know what I'm saying? What? What about the scripture did they believe? And he doesn't tell us. But it's kind of like, uh, for example, uh, you look at Paul. Uh, we could go out to Acts chapter 13, verse 35, and um, you'll see he's using something. So so uh, we could, uh, just like Paul does, we go back to Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. Samuel, why don't you read that so we can get our head in the space? Mm-hmm for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy
1: One see corruption.
0: Yeah. So they read that, and it's like, oh, we won't let your Holy One see corruption. This was one of the texts on which we we even hang the idea that there would be a resurrection, okay? And having that, Paul uses it and looks back, uh, could they have been thinking about the exact same scripture or other scriptures? Or again, are they just thinking about it all? But it's so funny to think, here are these guys, they've grown up Jewish. They, I mean, their whole life has revolved around a lot of the, the traditions, the, the Sabbath and the readings and all of the things. And yet right here, after Jesus is raised, they believe the scripture. And I just, that's an amazing picture to me. And, and, and it can't be that they didn't believe it before, but it's got to be like this new level of believing, right? So again, you see this idea of believing being somewhat of a progressive uh, affair. I don't know. I just think that's a great picture. Yeah. But they believe the scripture and they believe the word that Jesus had spoken. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And, and and again, there's that picture of the disciples. Well, didn't, didn't they just tell us that they believed in him? But here it is after he's resurrected. They're believing in him again. We need to be careful. We don't take little parts like this too literally. We got to go, wait a second. If you're going to tell me that they believed a number of times, what do I do with that? It could have been that they were wavering a lot. Sometimes they believed, sometimes they didn't, and then things would happen. They believed again. And that's a very real possibility, but it could also be this idea that believing is a progressive thing, and how well does, well, actually, both of those things, how well does that relate to our lives and our walk with him?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it should make us feel much closer to the disciples and their lives through all of this.
0: Yeah, yeah. If for them, some of their believing didn't even happen until Jesus was gone, well, then our walk the maturing of our faith. It's, it's a lifelong process. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I like that. I like that. Helps me. Let's go on. Verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Wow. You ever get the feeling that you've read something a bunch of times but it's like wow, I don't remember reading that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like us
1: going through John like every little chunk of scripture after we you get done reading it, and I'm like, well, "What
0: the heck does that mean?" I know, and, and that is the book of John, which is why we never understand why people say, hey, why don't you start with the book of John? Anyway, let's start breaking some of this down. So he's in Jerusalem, Passover feast, and it says, many believed in his name. Now that's like saying that they, they accepted the authenticity of his authority. He was acting with authority and they accepted that as authentic. He was indeed some, some sort of agent of God. Now, I don't know if you remember. This John is a fairly 1. common phrase. Yeah, back in John 1, the Targums. Uh, what did, do you remember what we said believing in the name was?
1: Well, I know that the, the John one twelve references to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right become children of god and so there was the twofold aspect of like trusting that god is who he says he is and then like receiving him in faithfulness and in in instruction to like the word the you know the uh the logos that god has given to humanity
0: yeah 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 and we even showed like that example where hey um You see the phrase, you know, like in your normal English translation, it just says believed in the Lord, good translation. But in the Targums, they expanded it to something like believed in the name of the word of the Lord, Uh, just how it extended all that out. But yeah, believing in his name, you're accepting that authenticity of his authority, Um, which is, okay, that's, that's awesome. So here are these people, they believed in his name. But when did they do that? When they saw the signs. Samuel, can you list off the signs that Jesus did in this part of the story? Crickets? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, yeah. John doesn't tell us. They saw him do a bunch of signs that led to them believing in his name, and John doesn't even bother to tell us what they were. Come on, John. Yeah. It's weird, right? Um... But maybe we could at least uh, make some sort of statement about, well, what were they seeing in those signs? And, and hopefully, as we continue through all of this uh, study of the Gospels, this is going to become not just clear, but actually, well, it's just obvious. But it isn't yet, and so I'm going to say again, whatever signs he was doing— People were seeing something about the kingdom. They were looking, they saw the power, but it was more than that. They were seeing what was being done and what it meant. And it was, it was drawing them to the idea of the kingdom. Therefore, it's a sign that he is that king. Mm. So uh, anyway, we'll say that. Now something else, we actually have a little bit of wordplay going on here. So in the first part, it says that many believed in his name. But then when it starts talking about Jesus, for his part, it says that he did not entrust himself to them. Now, you wouldn't think of it in the English, but if you're looking at the the Greek words underneath, they're the same word. The same Greek word is translated believe and entrust. So in the Greek, I mean, if we were just, you know, like if we had a Greek dictionary or something, it's just going to be basically believe. But, you know, occasionally we like to try to connect this back to the, the likely Hebrew word because it brings more ideas to the table because, again, they're, they're not Greek thinking, even though it's Greek writing. It's, it's, it's Jewish thinking. So this idea of believing or entrusting, if we want to say that, it's more along the lines of wearing something like a garment. It's more like proving to be firm. It's reliable and it's faithful. Now, that's important for us, generally speaking, when we just talk about, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Well, I believe. Yeah. Are you wearing this whole thing like a garment? Are you proving to be firm? Are you reliable? Are you faithful? Because that's what believing is, right? Mm. So seeing the signs that he was doing, okay, and again, we don't know what they were. They seem to have believed pretty firmly, at least at this moment. We don't know about their future. That's a different thing. Okay, but they believed pretty firmly. Jesus, however, doesn't have the same confidence in them. Do you think he's fair in his assessment, Samuel? I would say so. Yeah, I think we're going to find out, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But then it says that he knew all people. Now, okay, we've already talked in part of the story. Uh, Jesus knew things about Peter. He knew some things about Nathanael. But I don't think, I mean, it could be but it's not necessary that this phrase is intended to claim that Jesus is walking around just omniscient. I don't think that's what we're really getting at. I think the idea that he knew all people is very much the same way that we could say, well, if I know people, I know that they're going to fill in the blank, right? It's just a, a general statement. Jesus understood humans. And if I could say, Samuel, how is it that Jesus understands humans? Because he himself is a human? Yes. John, he's going way out of his way to indicate that Jesus fully understood man inside and out, and he's not ready to reciprocate the trust that they've put in him. God's demonstrating, well, I guess we would call it, a, a principle, a true principle, trust is something that is earned. And we also know from having lived in life and interacting with people, even though that principle is true, it's a very good guide, sometimes we know that trust is, is given without having earned it, right? And there, there are stories, there are ways in which we will see God in a sense giving trust that isn't really earned and of course giving so many other things that aren't earned because he's merciful but jesus the reason that he knows that he's probably not in it's probably not a good idea to just give trust to these people is because he's living as a human he understands what it is to be tempted he understands what it is that that goes on inside a human being if we can try to relate to him as this this guy was just like me just like me okay except that he actually never gave in he always chose god's will above his own but other than that he experienced life In every way that I do, that really, it just opens up so much about who he is. And if you have that image of him, then you can easily understand how it is, hey, he wasn't entrusting himself to them because he totally understood mankind because he was one. Anyway. Yeah, I I can't
1: say that I think that much about Jesus entrusting or not entrusting his own loyalties to people around him like we we hear talk all the time about us as humans trusting god jesus whatever but turning that on its head that's just it's a really evocative provocative thing to think about i don't know that's just it it, it accentuates his humanity a lot yeah with how he struggled with trusting others especially those who were out to seek their own gain versus
0: be a part of his mission. Yeah. And in the story, we're not there yet, but when we get there, he must, at some point, entrust all of this to some. I mean, he had his, his disciples, and out of the disciples, he had his apostles, and he had those that he sent forth while he was alive, and then he had those he sent forth after his death and resurrection. So he will entrust himself in the story as we go. But so far right here, these people, that's just not a thing that's happening. So it's just, it's, its I don't know. It's amazing to see and think about because you're right. We don't think about it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Uh, What's another thing? Uh, We can also see uh, this is the first in a little bit of a theme that's going to go for a while. Jesus isn't seeking any kind of fame, notoriety. He's not... You know, he's not trying to start a movement. He's not trying to start a a new religion. And think about all the things I just said. If he was trying to do any of those things, all of them would require him entrusting himself to man. But he's only entrusting himself to God, at least at this point. And, you know, it's a little different later, but I don't know. It's a cool picture. Uh, And then John uh, he seems to be using everything that we just talked about, read about uh, on mankind, this, this whole idea about mankind. He's using it as a little bit of a segue into the Nicodemus story, which is coming up next. And I'm just going to say, let's start out at the beginning. Nicodemus turns out to be one of the good guys. So you need to think about why it is this story about Nicodemus is here and at least begin with the idea that, hey, he ends up being one of the good guys. There's got to be something to that. But as we're going to see, the Nicodemus story begins in darkness under the cover of night. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but let's go to there. Uh, so we're moving on. We're getting to John chapter three, verse one. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay. So what do we know about Nicodemus? Well, his name means conqueror of the people. I don't know if that's important or not, but there you go. Bit of information. But archaeologists and and scholars, whoever, people who are trying to figure this stuff out, they believe that this was a person that they actually know something about. His name was Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. And from what they know, he was this ridiculously wealthy Jewish leader from Jesus' day, and now, uh, we can't stop there. He seems to have also been, um, I don't even know what the right word is, a faithful, pious, uh, something, Jew. There's there's a story about this Nicodemus Ben-Gurion where God actually extended the sunlight or, or the day for him. It's like, okay, whether he really is this guy or not, okay, we we can't say 100% for sure. A lot of people really believe it is, and he seems to be, you know, a a good figure, an important figure, uh, just in, in the history of Judaism generally, right? So we got that, but then it says that he's a ruler of the Jews, which for John, for the most part, is a negative thing to say. but. We're, you know, we'll hold on to that and then see what the story tells us. So what we do know is that Nicodemus was a Pharisee and the text isn't explicit, but I think most believe that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And that's, uh, you may or may not be familiar with that. It's It's a ruling council in Israel. And as far as we know, although there were other sects of Judaism Um, It was only made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, and they had the religious power, the judicial power, the political power, okay? Um, And so you might think of that, and you might be thinking, oh man, that's a bad thing, right? No wonder. But, just for clarity, the seeds of this Sanhedrin, the one that's operating right here in Jesus' day, this was all in the Torah and and we can go back and look at it um, you can see Exodus chapter 18 verses 21 and 22 Numbers chapter 11 16 and 17 Numbers chapter 11 uh, verses 24 and 25 Deuteronomy chapter 1 f- verses 15 to 18 uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 9 to 12 all of these now now they're not going to say something explicit like I want you to organize a Sanhedrin and it will look like this okay it doesn't but You can see in it the idea of setting up leaders, and they do have the religious and the judicial power. I'm not so sure about the political power, but whatever. You see the seeds of all this working. So the Sanhedrin is a natural result of what God had already started in Israel. Now, at this time, it gets totally messed up. I mean, it's so messed up that you actually have the Sadducees And I think we've even mentioned this before. They are literally purchasing their position on the Sanhedrin because they can do that through the Romans. So it's a terrible, terrible power struggle game. People ruling for very, very different reasons other than the benefit of Israel. So it's kind of messed up. But anyway, Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and as far as we know, he's a part of that group. Yeah,
1: I I really like that reference that you put uh before the Sanhedrin. I think reading all of Exodus 18 would be helpful for someone because the origins of it start with Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. Yep. Um and just, you know, our listeners may not know it, but it 10-second summary like Moses was getting overwhelmed with being able to be, you know, leader and judge of the people with interpreting God's word and how to deal that on a day-to-day basis. And Jethro was like, you can't do it alone, man. Like you need help. Like you should appoint some people that can help interpret these things that God has given us. And if they can't figure it out, then they can come to you. So to simplify it all down, at least in my mind, it's like, take that overarching concept. And that was what the intent was for the Sanhedrin You know, right in Jesus's day in the first century. Yeah, exactly. That doesn't mean that they didn't corrupt it because they're humans and they, you know, (laughs) they have their own will, too. But that doesn't mean that the system itself wasn't intended for good and
0: that it's not a good system. Right. Well, and isn't that the story of the whole Bible? It was all intended for good. And it got messed up. And God is in the middle of fixing it. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. Yeah. Really, really good. And yeah, uh, another thing to your point, um, and I'm sure we'll say this a million times. Look, when we give you a scripture reference, it's never our intent that you go back and read just that little bit. Man, read all around there. Try to get into the context of what's going on and then understand the, 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 the little bit that we're focusing on, you know, in its, in its context. So
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, good call. All right, so, so uh, there's this guy. His name's Nicodemus. And we get to verse two, John chapter three, verse two, it says this, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Hmm. All right. That sounds pretty good. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Hmm. Now, why would he do that, Samuel? Maybe because he doesn't want
1: those that occupy the daytime to know that he's approaching this Jesus. Yeah.
0: There there seems to be a little bit of secrecy involved. For whatever reason, he feels like he really wants to meet with Jesus, but he doesn't want to do it openly. Interesting thing to note, right? Uh, Now, John... The writer, okay, he's also using this as a bit of a setup. He, he kind of wants to associate this Nicodemus encounter with darkness, right? He's meeting with Jesus at night. And, and part of what he's doing is, is he's using Nicodemus as sort of a stand-in for anyone struggling to accept and believe. Now, we'll see that. I mean, you know, I'm kind of reading ahead here a little bit, but it'll help you following the story if you get that. Nicodemus, in some sense, represents all those struggling to accept and believe, and he's, he's meeting Jesus in darkness. Hmm? Kind of a cool picture, right? Yeah. But now, that sounds like we're being a little harsh on Nicodemus. Now, maybe we can look at something, some other parts. He calls Jesus rabbi. Now, for a man in Nicodemus' position, this is a very generous show of respect. He's a leader in Israel, and we're going to find out he's, he's a teacher in Israel, and yet he refers to Jesus as rabbi. It's kind of a big deal. And then he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a te- Wait. We? No? Who is we? Samuel, got any guesses?
1: Uh, Since we said that he's a part of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, maybe people in that group?
0: Yeah. That's, the, that's a good guess. Because we don't really know. But it would suggest, it would suggest that Nicodemus has some friends, and maybe even friends in the Sanhedrin, who are like him. And I guess in some sense, whatever we're seeing in Nicodemus, we can apply to them. Like he, he's a representative of them. Okay. But, but it's we know. And then and, and he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. So they're convinced. They know at, at, at least that Jesus is someone that God is working through. You are a teacher come from God. So you're not just an ordinary guy. God's got his hand on you. God's working through you, that kind of a thing. And then if, if you're wondering, well, okay, how did they know? Well, it tells us. We know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. Well, then you're back with what signs? Well, these are the same ones that John mentioned earlier, but didn't actually tell us what they were right it was the reason everybody was believing in his name and it's like yeah and we still have no idea what so without those signs just just think about this for a second you've got leaders of the people and we're talking to one Nicodemus this Jesus okay he probably would have commanded you know some sort of general respect assuming that his teaching is good rich powerful whatever But if you add the signs, and again, we're adding the assumption in there that through those signs, people can pretty easily make the connection that, hey, these are signs of the king, signs of the kingdom. Okay, So with the addition of those, you now have this leader of the people coming and saying, you are from God, which is, I mean, Think about who this guy is and the fact that he's saying that. It's it's really quite powerful. And now it's it's not stated, but you could, I mean, you could imagine Nicodemus even asking some questions. Now, again, we're not going to get to hear him, but you know, he might be wondering, okay, we get it. God has sent you. We see that. But why? Why did he send you? And oh, by the way, if I really actually you know, and making the connection with the kingdom, he might even be wondering, like, are you the one? Are you the one that's going to restore the kingdom? And I got to tell you, this idea of Jewish people interacting with Jesus and this this question, like I'm phrasing it as, are you the one who's going to restore the kingdom? Are you the one bringing the kingdom? This theme, this question, it is just all over the Gospels. We're going to see it more times than you'll probably want to see it, okay? But it culminates, uh, and Samuel, I don't know, I didn't actually put this in here. Uh, maybe you could flip over, I think it's Acts chapter one, verse six. If you could get to that, um, this is Jesus. Uh, if I've got it right, Jesus has He's been resurrected. He's been, you know, hanging around a little bit. And he's just about now to ascend into heaven and read Acts chapter one, verse six.
1: Yep. So when they had come together, they were asking him, him being Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel?
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we're seeing it in these early places and I'm I'm kind of trying to fill in, you know, the, the the holes for us. It's gonna become much more apparent as we go. But look, that's they've been around this guy all this time.
1: Well, and we've seen it already, like with John the Baptist, like they asked the same questions about him when they saw what he did. So like yeah. it it should be of natural consequence that it, it is a common thing for them to be asking when when someone of great importance comes into the scene yeah
0: but even at the end after his death and resurrection they're still going okay so now the kingdom <laughs> i mean they just they're they're hanging on to that thing with both hands you know that i mean they they expect this thing to come so please don't think that we're making something out of nothing because this is a very real deal all right let's keep going Kind of feel like we're just not moving very quickly, but by golly, we're moving. So we're going to keep going. Verse three. Well, let's see. So, okay, Rabbi, we know you come from God. We see the signs. It couldn't be unless you were from God, right? Verse three. Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, What? What? Why? What? Yeah. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. Where did that come from? (laughs) Right? Uh, But Okay, now on one hand, though, this does sort of endorse our idea about the kingdom. Because Jesus brought it up, right? But okay, let's see what we got in here. First of all, this phrase, truly, truly just in a general sense when 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 someone is speaking and they repeat truly truly or i don't know amen amen or whatever they might say verily verily what they're trying to do is emphasize the importance of something being said okay that's that's like the general thing so so we can we definitely know that but what's really interesting right here Is Okay, in the Greek, you don't really have the punctuation that we're accustomed to in English, okay? So what we don't know is, is Jesus saying truly, truly, as in, Hey, Nicodemus, what you just said, you are totally right. Or is he saying, truly, truly, and now pay attention because I'm about to lay something on you that's totally true. And maybe... Part of the reason John wrote it the way he did is because it's so naturally, you know, you you would have that question, and it really is intended to apply to both. He is a teacher come from God, right? Couldn't do those signs unless God was with him. It's definitely true. But Jesus was about to say something that was super important, right? So, you know, we don't really know, but both make good sense, and there's no reason to just, you know, limit the text, let it have that, that sort of extra meaning. It, it, it enriches the story. Okay, let's just stop. Unless one is born again. Okay, well, what does that mean? And, and it's worse because, okay, a little secret underneath in the, in the Greek, very easily could be translated as born from above. The reason they translate it born again, I'm actually kind of a fan of. I think they did a good thing here and, and, I am, I'm not always a fan, okay? But here I think it was good because it actually speaks to something that's very important in Jewish thinking, right? Just, just as a reminder, you got these two guys meeting at night. They're probably not speaking Greek. We have the story written in Greek, but they're probably talking, well, I was going to say Hebrew. I always, I, I don't know why, I fail to mention, technically, they were, they were probably speaking Aramaic, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, similar to uh, Hebrew, but it's not Hebrew. Uh, But that would have been the common language at their time. So these two guys are probably talking in Aramaic in real life. But again, the, the whole idea that John used this phrase that could very easily be translated born again or born from above, I don't put it past John, who's just an incredible writer. He might be using this ambiguity on purpose. Why? Because John likes to create some confusion so that he can then bring an explanation, right? So uh, in Judaism, this is what's important. Born again, it's, it's already a common phrase, right? John didn't make it up. Jesus didn't make it up. This was already common. And it was used when they were talking about proselyte conversion. You, you know, when you were going to become, you had to study, You had to become circumcised. You had to go through a baptism, an immersion, just different things. That's how you converted to become legally an Israelite. Okay. But the whole, that part of that, that ritual, that ceremony, whatever, the part where they do the immersion, they referred to that as being born again. The idea was you entered into the water and that's like dying and then you come up out of the water and that's like being born or because we're talking about someone dying, okay, it's, it's rebirth, being born again, okay? So Nicodemus is totally aware of this. It's important that we see that. Nicodemus made a statement. Jesus makes this statement that feels like it comes from left field But Nicodemus totally knows what born again is in their culture, their context, their time. Uh, But just uh, before we go on, we have to at least address uh, this final little bit. You you can't be born again, uh, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So what's interesting, uh, just from a textual standpoint, is that John only uses this phrase, kingdom of God, right here. Uh, okay, well, here in verse three and in verse five, but it's right here in this story, okay? That's the only time John uses that phrase. It just, I don't know, I find that interesting because it's, it's in a lot of the other gospels, a lot. But anyway, uh, it's as if Jesus kind of sees through Nicodemus, and he knows what his real desire is or his real questions are about, the kingdom. Now, now we've said that he did these signs. They were signs of the kingdom. Nicodemus spoke of the signs as the authentication that Jesus is from God. And so Jesus responds with, hey, you can't see that kingdom unless you're born again. Or alternately, born from above. So, mm-hmm. it's a cool, cool picture of John telling this incredibly sparse story. In one sense, and at the same time, delivering this this crazy, dense thought altogether. And and we're left with it trying to fill in those holes, trying to get a, a picture of what's really going on between them.
1: Yeah, it's good. Um, some things that I was thinking of as you were laying all this out that maybe can help our listeners as well. Um, I know in the previous—previously um, pre- in this episode, I had brought up that Isaiah 40 reference about where that phrase— kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven started um and how it can that targum uh interchange it can it can also mean like here is your God or seeing God. Yeah. And then if if we know that the gospel actually means repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or repent for God is coming, God is here. Yeah. You you could see this as like this aspect of being he's saying uh, this aspect of being born again I know that there's more to being born again besides repentance, but is not repentance kind of like a rebirth with you turning around and starting something new, like your, your former reality, you are putting that to death to the best of your ability and starting on a new path, a new birth uh, towards righteous living. And Jesus may be alluding to like, unless your reality, you know, is reborn through repentance you can't see god you can't see me because god is god is in the kingdom the kingdom is where god is revealed so i don't know those were things that were coming to mind for me yeah
0: yeah that right there is a home run you knocked that one out of the park samuel (laughs) that is such a great picture and it's just plain true you can't see and know and understand God except through repentance. That's that's the beauty of the law. It's instruction on how to actually see and know him. That oh, that is so good. In fact, that's so good. Okay, regardless of the fact that we're out of time, we should just end on that. <laughs> well, okie dokie. Oh! Thank
1: you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your electronic device so that you are notified when our episodes release every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time so that you never miss an episode. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website at okie for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray and hope that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.